I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. I want to talk to you about safety. Can we do that? Uh, the title of the message today is A Safe Place, and we're going to see that in our study in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 20. Grab your Bible, your tablet, your phone, uh, whatever you read the scripture off of, and go to Joshua chapter 20 as we continue on in our series. Uh, as someone asked me in the first service today, we did kind of jump over a few chapters uh, because in uh, preaching, we uh, didn't want to just read to you the verses about the markers of the property uh, and the inheritance. Uh, hopefully you'll read through that. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we land on the spots uh, where there are certainly uh, things that we need to see in the Old Testament. How many of you know that when you read the 39 books of the Old Testament, you do not see the name Jesus on any of the pages, all right? The name Jesus is not on any page in the chapters of the Old Testament. But I remind you today, Jesus is on every page in the Old Testament. And so we see him very clearly in Joshua chapter 20. We're in the series of God's faithfulness, our obedience, and today we're looking at what is known as the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge, and I hope this will just bless your socks off like it has mine, all right? Because we're going to see Jesus uh, in Joshua chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord, Joshua 20 and verse number 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. Notice that this is a command from God. This is not man's plan. This is God's plan. He told Moses, when you get into the land, I want you to designate cities of refuge. Verse 3, that the manslayer who strikes a person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now let's slow down for just a minute. The manslayer is someone who strikes a person without intent. They don't do it on purpose or maybe even unknowingly. There is in the Bible several places where this thought of unknown sins are mentioned. If they unintentionally kill someone, these cities of refuge are a place for them to run to. Why? Because there will be an avenger of blood looking for them. So if you had a family member whose life was taken either by murder or by manslaughter, if you will, you would appoint a person in your family, designate them as the avenger of blood who would have the right to go eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and take the life of the other person. So God says these cities of refuge are for the ones who unknowingly or accidentally take a life. The avenger of blood does not have the right uh, to take their life. Look at verse number 4. He shall flee to one of these cities, shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly 
and did not hate him in the past. He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Did you digest that? He comes to the gate of the city. He tells the elders, I accidentally killed someone. They are to receive him into the city, give him a place to live. They're to hear his case, make a determination on whether or not he's telling the truth. And even if he is telling the truth, the scripture says he has to remain there in that city until the high priest passes away and then he is exonerated of the charges and he's able to return back to his hometown. Notice verse 7, they set up a part, Kedish in the Galilee, in the hill country, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. So these are the cities to the west of the Jordan River. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Rumen and Ramoth and Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. So there you have it. These are the six cities designated as cities of refuge. Notice verse 9, very important. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the sojourner or the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. And this is the word of the Lord. May we pray together? God, thank you for this text that shows us Christ. Thank you that you have brought us through this journey in the book of Joshua, and you've taught us so much, so much about who you are and so much about who we are. You've reminded us that when many times we are fickle, you are faithful. You remind us here in Joshua 20 that every man needs to run to Christ. That every man has trouble. That every man is sinful. That sometimes we are misunderstood. And we always need to run to Jesus. Our rock, our refuge and our safe place. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would guide me now and give me the words in my mouth. Help me to say exactly what you want me to say and to not say anything that I shouldn't say. Give me boldness, give me clarity, give me liberty. I pray that you will save the sinner that's nearest hell. And I pray that every Christian would be reminded of the safe place that we have in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. The safest place a person can be is in the presence of Jesus Christ. The safest place in your life today would be to know that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I'm not saying today that if you're in Christ that you will never have trouble. I'm not saying that you will never maybe lose your life here on this earth. I'm not saying that you will not be attacked. I'm not saying that you will not go through difficult days or spiritual warfare, but I am saying that the safest place 
and all the world to be is in Christ and Christ in you. The worst thing that could happen to you today, the very worst thing, would usher you into the presence of Jesus for all eternity. So the safest place to be today is to be in Christ. If I could just veer just a little bit and say, I believe that a safe place ought to be in every town. A safe place ought to be the church, the local expression of the body of Christ. I've been grieved this week as I have read about Tuesday night, the incident that happened in Colorado at one of our sister churches where three lives were taken at the church on Tuesday night because uh, of hatred and malice and animosity in a person's heart as a group showed up just for the college and young adult ministry uh, to have Bible study and worship and three of them went out into eternity. I'm grieved over that. I believe the church needs to be a safe place. I want to just add to that that I am so thankful for all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes by our security team that works very hard every week to keep this a safe place. You know that's the day in which we live, right? And so we want to work hard this week at Vacation Bible School to make sure uh, that our children are safe and they're watched over and they're very well taken care of. I was also brokenhearted two Sundays ago from today when I read the report that came out about sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches. My heart grieves for every person who has experienced that kind of evil and wickedness in a place that ought to be a safe place. The church should be the safest place in town for young people and for children. I'll be honest with you, I have to pray in the Spirit to not become angry over those types of things taking place. They should be dealt with swiftly and immediately. Every church has a responsibility before God to protect and to address any situation of abuse. We have policies and procedures in place in our church that we follow very meticulously. We have background checks that are done on all of our children's workers. And let me say this, we had a situation I think last year at Vacation Bible School where someone did not want to do a background check to work here. And if you will not do a background check at our church, you will not serve around our children. That's it, plain and simple. We do background checks. Why? Because we have a responsibility to watch out for our kids. We are all mandatory reporters. We will defend and protect our children, and we will deal harshly with anyone who violates that. Let me say a word, if I may, about us being affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. A lot of people do not understand what the Southern Baptist Convention is. It's about 50,000 churches. That's a lot of churches and a lot of people, right? And so our structure for the Southern Baptist Convention is different than almost every single denomination. We do not have a hierarchy in our denomination. We are a local autonomous church. We operate independently of a convention. The convention does not own our property. The convention does not tell us what to do. There's no one outside of this church that has any authority over our church. They would not come into our church and 
uh, and uh, tell us what to do or how to do ministry. As a matter of fact, if they tried to do that, I'd tell them to leave because we are a local autonomous church. And so you think about other denominations, I'm not going to start naming them, they have a hierarchy. They have somebody up at the top, and then it comes down, and you have this layer of authority, and you have this layer of authority, and this layer of authority, and then you get to the local church. The Southern Baptist Convention is like this, okay? We are the authority. Members of the local church are the authority. We are called messengers. And so we make decisions about our convention and how it spends its money, how it does missions, how it cooperates, and we choose whether to cooperate or not. We are not in a situation where if something happens in a church in Kentucky or New York or Oklahoma, that somehow we as a local church are responsible for that. What we are responsible for is for 13801 Rarity Point Road, Pensacola, Florida. Before God, it is our responsibility to make sure that this is a safe place. Somebody say amen. Let me say this. Last week there was a list that was released that had 700 names on it. And regardless of what the news media says or how it is twisted or distorted or presented, let me say that one case is too many. One case is too many. But there have not been 700 cases covered up in Southern Baptist churches. Every pastor that I know is aggressive. Uh, Every pastor I know is like a bulldog to deal with situations like this. Every church, every leader, every deacon, every elder, every small group leader, every attender, we must all do our part to make sure that the Point Church is a safe place. Amen? Let me move on to talk about this safe place in Joshua chapter 20. In God's structure of inhabiting the land, He told Moses, Moses, when you go into the land, I want you to designate these cities as a place for someone who basically commits an accidental death or manslaughter, I want you to create a place for them to go. And it just reminds me that our God is a God of detail. There's never a moment when our God says, wow, I never thought of that. There's never a day of discovery for Him. There's never a day when our God says, I'm not sure what I'm going to do in this situation. He wanted to be very clear in the way the people interacted with each other that that He is always in control and that He has a plan and that our God values life. And that our God is very much interested in how we handle matters of justice and matters of mercy. Right off the bat, in Genesis chapter 9, in the covenant that he made with Noah and his family, this is what the Lord said about the the taking of a life. He said, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Leviticus tells us that God is the creator and the author of life. And life is in 
the blood. These verses remind me, first of all, is, and I'll tie Joshua chapter 20 with this in just a moment. It reminds me of the principle of justice. The principle of justice. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 19, we'll look at in just a minute, and Numbers chapter 6, or Numbers chapter 35, verses 6 through 34, that these cities of refuge are very much tied to God's justice and His mercy. The people are living in the land, and I remind you at this time, there was no police force in the day. So if you have a law or a moral code in a society, what do you do when you have no one <clears throat> to enforce it? Because God is merciful and He is just, and He cares very much about what is right and what is wrong, and He values life. Our God, we see here in this text, is all about due process and not rushing, or rushing to a judgment in a matter. Why? Because every life, Every life is created in the Imago Dei, created in the image of life. In Numbers chapter 35 and verse 33, God reminds His people that just as much as He values life, just as much as He cares about bloodshed, He wants His people, His covenantal people, to have the same concerns. Look at the verse. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So God is speaking here about blood being shed. Lives that are being taken with total disregard for the Imago Day. I woke up this morning, gang, and saw where blood was running in the streets of Philadelphia overnight. And I could move back and just tell you story after story. In these last couple of weeks, the elementary uh, thing that happened in Texas and the shooting in Buffalo, New York, how in the world do these things happen? We disregard life. We don't value life. And God says when we don't value life, there must be justice. Now what is justice? If you look at that word and you study it, it means concepts of right and wrong especially as they relate to people and wrongs committed by a person against another so who is the author today of what is right and what is wrong we believe it's God we believe that God has spoken very clearly into that I would also add how in the world could we ever have a baseline for morality, a baseline for a moral code of what is right and what is wrong unless we have a foundation or a lens through which to look at every situation and to look at every society. Now, I know we're gathered here today in a church, and so I think it's pretty clear that we believe, at least I believe, uh, that we should have a biblical worldview, that God has given us His Word there's 66 books in it, and we study it in its time frames, and we study it in its historical context, and we certainly make applications for this day, but we look at the word justice, right and wrong, determinations about situations, we look at it through the lens of God's Word. Now, you and I today are living in a culture 
where if you just do a Google search on the word justice, you'll find that culture has a list a mile long of words that are put in front of the word justice, where in many cases the culture and the society is trying to speak to a matter where man is in charge of determining what is right and what is wrong. Now when we talk about a biblical worldview, we're talking about God's justice. That which is right and that which is wrong. The problem is today, in this culture, in this world, no one oversees the dictionary of what these words actually mean. Anybody notice that lately? So let me give you an example. I've heard a lot in the last few weeks. Use this phrase used a lot, so I did a little research on it. I've heard the phrase reproductive justice used over and over. So I did a little research about it. And while there may be one or two different lanes that it might can go, what I see is that it is primarily, it is primarily being used right now in our culture to say, I am pro-abortion. If you are pro-abortion, you cannot and you do not have a biblical worldview. What does God say about innocent blood being shed? George Barna, about three or four weeks ago, released a study at Northern Arizona University about worldviews in the pulpits of America. Here's what they found. The nationwide study of Christian pastors, and I'm not even sometimes sure about that descriptor, found that only 37% of pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. 37%. Just a little over a third. What they found was that many pastors said, well, we have a view of syncretism. What is syncretism? It is, of course, the combining of varying views. I'm a Christian, I'm a Bible believer, but I'm going to mix some Christianity with some communism. I'm going to mix some Christianity with some socialism. I'm going to mix some Christianity with some Marxism. And that may be philosophical, it might be sociological, but nonetheless, the response from these pastors to Barna is that no, we do not have a scripture alone view. It is scripture plus other things. And I suggest to you this morning point that if The pulpits of America are occupied with a 30% biblical worldview. We are in a heap of trouble. If we have pastors who do not believe that Scripture is sufficient for today, if we have pastors who do not believe that the Bible is actually what brings clarity to the world and to society, if we have pastors today that that do not believe that the Bible is necessary, it is necessary, then I suggest to you, we are in big trouble. I'm not mad and I'm not angry, but I am in a spirit of boldness today (laughs) to say that our Bible is our compass. Our Bible is our compass. How many of you 
know the name Warren Wearsby? Have you heard that name before? He wrote the B-series. I was privileged at the baccalaureate of my undergraduate degree that uh, Warren Wearsby was the preacher for that service. And, you know, I've heard a lot of sermons through the years, and many of them I don't have a clue. I don't remember. But I'm going to tell you something. I remember the sermon he preached that night. He preached one little small verse in such a great expository way. He, he preached Proverbs 23, 23 that says, Buy the truth and sell it not. And he had three little simple points. Number one, there is such a thing as truth. Number two, it's valuable. It costs something. And then number three, whatever you do, don't lose it. Don't get away from it. Stick with it. Stay faithful to the truth. God sent me here today, just this is a little sidebar in this section of the sermon, but God just sent me here today to say, stick to the truth, buy the truth and sell it not. I was reading Erwin Lutzer the other day and he said this, watch this Christian, look at this right here, look at this. Many Christians will not be talked out of their faith, but they will be mocked out of their faith. Mocked out of their faith. I think about Hugh Latimer one of the heroes of the Reformation back in the 16th century. He was invited to stand in front of King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII was brutal. He was known for cutting people's heads off, including two of his wives. As Latimer is standing in front of him, he feels the pressure of that moment. What to say and what not to say. I may say something that's going to tick this dude off and he's going to throw me in prison or maybe even take my life. And later on, Latimer said there was a voice inside of him that was saying, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking in front of the high and mighty King Henry VIII? He has the power to send you to prison. He's going to cut your head off if you don't please him. Will you say something now that will offend those royal ears? And then the moment of truth came, and Latimer said just before he spoke, he heard another voice that said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you were always speaking in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And that one day, King Henry VIII, and you yourself, you will stand before the throne of God, and to him one day you will both give an account so be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And that's exactly what Latimer did. Now here's the rest of the story. King Henry VIII didn't kill him. His daughter did. Bloody Mary. She had Latimer and his cohort, Bishop Ridley, burned at the stake. And the story is in boldness at this moment of death for Latimer, that he said out loud to his friend Ridley, Master Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. May I say today, God, give us more Latimers. In a day of compromise, capitulation, in backing up, may God give us today some sweet Christians who will say, no, God has spoken, right is right, and wrong is wrong. Justice says there is a right, and justice says there is a wrong. Now, real quickly, that was my introduction. It's not going to be long, though. Stay with me. Real quickly, I give you that background in your mind to show you 
what the cities of refuge actually mean. This is a special situation, a special situation. And the book of Deuteronomy gives us a a really clear picture, and I want to read these verses to you. It really gives you a, a picture of this situation. Look on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 19, what God is saying here and why he is giving this provision in his justice Why he's giving this provision of the city of refuge. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and their houses. In other words, when you get into the promised land, you will set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God's given you to possess. You'll measure the distances. This is important. Measure the distances. Divide them into three areas. What is God saying here? I want you to make the cities of refuge accessible. I want someone to be able to get there in a reasonable amount of time. Why? Because the avenger of blood is trying to hunt them down. Measure the distances. Divide the land. The Lord God gives his possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who, by fleeing there, may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. Here's an example of this in verse number 5. As, example, when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head of the axe slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of those cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Because the way is long and strike him fatally. Though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers. And gives you all the land that he promised to your fathers. Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today. By loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall sin and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. What do we see in these verses? We see that God initiates capital punishment. He says, if you take a life, you must give your life. It's that simple. He must die. But in special situations, when there is an accidental death, this person should be protected. Swinging an axe, the axe head flies off, you accidentally kill someone, your life should not be taken from you immediately. If you're taking notes, write down Numbers 35. I'm not going to read this passage for you. But verses 6 through 34 is another passage where God clearly says that there is murder, watch, there's murder, and then there is accidental death. Which leads me to the second point that I need to drive home here. Not only do we see the principle of justice, but we see the principle of intent, right? The principle of intent. Verse 5 in our text, without malice or forethought. Now, David Howard, in his notes about Joshua 20, he points out 
that the text shows us there are inadvertent sins. There are sins of negligence. That is, although the sinner knew that an action was wrong, he was negligent. He accidentally commits the sin. The second is ignorance. That is, the, the sinner was aware of his action, but he remained unaware that they were sinful. We actually see this in uh, Ezekiel chapter 45. It talks about sins unintentionally. We looked at that uh, in our study of uh, the book of Hebrews. So in both of those cases, negligence or ignorance, the sinner is guilty. Negligence was to be accounted for as well as ignorance of the law as no excuse just as today. And so be reminded about God's laws. There is the matter of intent. Has anyone ever come to you and told you something and then you repeated it based off of what they told you but you had no idea it was truthful? It's like, y'all wait. Okay. Somebody tells you something, you repeat it, and then you find out it wasn't true. Or let me illustrate it another way. Misty and I remember a few weeks ago we were in a restaurant and I said to her, so-and-so is sitting around the corner back there in that booth. And then we turned around and went to doing something and we were going to say something to that person and we turned around and they were gone. Okay? Now, did I lie to her? Come on, get with me here. I didn't lie to her. I mean, a minute ago I saw him sitting in that booth. All right? So I did not mislead her. So when you, when you lie... There is an intentionality to lie. Here, God is saying there is intent when it comes to taking a life. Some people have malice in their heart. They have malicious intent about something maybe that happened to them. But this person has no malice, no maliciousness. He's to run to the city of refuge, make his case to the elders at the gate. Here's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to tell his truthful story. Now, how many of you know somebody could lie like a rug in this situation, right? Somebody could commit murder in a malicious way, but come and lie. So there has to be this discernment. He's supposed to tell his story. If the story is a lie, they're to turn this person back over to the avenger of blood to die. But if he is telling the truth, if it's deemed that his story is truthful, he's to remain in the city until when? He's to remain until the high priest passes away. Now, how many of you know in this moment, it'd be really good to have all the ages of the high priest in those cities, right? Because you want him to get older and pass away so you can be free. Let, let, me, let me pause for just a minute, and, and let me say this, that we, we, are all, we are all capable of anything. We're all capable of anything. It'd be real easy for us sitting here at church today. I say, I, you know, I'll never, I'll never kill anybody. Let me tell you something. If you've got anger in your heart, if you've got anger in your heart and bitterness and malice in your heart, you have no idea what you would do. I was reading Tony Evans the other day. He said, he asked the question. He said, did you hear about the guy who said he and his wife promised that they would never go to bed angry? He said they hadn't slept in seven years. Seven years. You know, we are real good at pointing out big sins and other people's sins. And then we harbor anger in our own heart. And in the right moment, in the right situation, you don't know what you would do. You don't know what your limits are. 
What leads to that? I'll tell you what leads to it. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Bitterness. We call that premeditated murder, right? You're thinking about it. You basically committed that in your heart. R.T. Kendall, I've been reading this book on total forgiveness. If you need to read a book on forgiveness, I'm telling you right now, not right now, after church, get on Amazon and order Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. It will wreck you, it will wreck you about what forgiveness truly is. We have been forgiven of much by our Lord, but yet we can be so unforgiving. He says in that book that bitterness is an inward condition. It is an excessive desire for vengeance that comes from deep resentment. So before you would ever get to the point of maliciousness and taking someone's life, deal with the unforgiveness and the anger in your heart. Right? Intent. So we see the principle of justice. We see the principle of intent. And then let me wrap up by showing you in verse number 9 and kind of tying this together a little better about the equality of forgiveness. The equality of forgiveness. Verse number 9 is so important. Because God had said, hey, when you get into the land, when you get into the land, when you occupy the land, when you drive them out of the land, when you dispossess the land, it's yours, it belongs to you. I'm giving it to you. But watch at verse number 9. God makes a provision for the stranger and for the outsider. Look at it. These are the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. God makes a provision for the outsider. Now, let me wrap this up. This is good. History records for us in extra-biblical sources that these cities of refuge were, the people understood how important that they were. The signage was very clear. The paths were marked very clearly. The gates of the cities of refuge were to always remain open. You know why? Because God wanted this person to get there quickly. There was only one provision, only one, for this person in this situation, and it was to run to the city of refuge with clearly marked paths and clearly marked entrances. Does that kind of sound a little bit like the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Does the city of refuge not give us a picture of Christ because Jesus is the only one that can do anything about our problem of sin and about the predicament that we are in. The second thing, this is so good. We studied through the book of Hebrews and we looked at the sacrificial system and we saw how the high priest himself was even a sinner. The man who offered the blood on the altar, he had to first of all do it for himself and then for his family. And then he had to cover or atone for the sins of the people. But the writer of Hebrews says that we have now a great high priest. And that high priest in the city of refuge that would pass away 
And then that person would be exonerated of the charge against them. It is actually a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross when he died. Our great high priest died. And he made a way so that we could be forgiven of the charges against us. Because we are sinners and we violated God's law. My pastor growing up used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. And what happens in Joshua chapter 20 and verse 9, I'm going to wrap up here. What, what, what many scholars say that we have to see in Joshua 20 and verse number 9 is how it connects to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 11. Look at it with me. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Here it is. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers. Strangers to what? Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Those first two words though, verse number 13, ought to make somebody shout today. But now. But now. Things are different now. Why? Because in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is that not good stuff? I read all those verses to say this. Never forget when you're reading your Bible and you land on a page like Joshua chapter 20 and you read verse number 9, it'd be very easy to miss it that Jesus is right there in that verse. That Jesus is the one that came and died so that you and I, the Gentile, the stranger, those that were far off, that we can be made nigh by the blood of Christ. That now you and I are in a safe place. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our safety. And so the gospel is preached today to the whole world. Every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. There's only one solution for your problem. Just as the one solution for the manslayer is the city of refuge. The one solution for man's sinful problem is our Savior who was nailed to a cross. He's the answer. And so I would say to us today, whether sinner, saved, saint, no matter where we're at today in this journey of life, 
I would say run to Jesus. Run to Jesus because He truly is our safe place.